Father in heaven, as we come now to ponder the gospel from your word, I ask for your help, not only for me, but also for all of us in this room who are now appointed to hear a word from you through the scriptures. Would you come and by the Holy Spirit anoint me and help me so that I speak the truth and so that I am humbled by the truth that I speak and speak it in a balanced and fair way. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be love abounding in this room and that there would be humility and that there would be a docile spirit before the living word of God and that all would give heed to what you have to say and be discerning in what is true. So Lord, draw Christians into deeper love to Christ and draw unbelievers into faith. And so glorify your grace in our midst now, I pray. And guard us from the evil one who would love to distract us and cause us to think thoughts unworthy of the gospel and confuse us and deceive us. Guard us from him and from our own flesh and sin and finitude. We need your help. So draw near now and help, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a little parable this morning. Once upon a time, there was a little boy who lived in a village outside of a town or lived in a farm outside of town. Had never been to town. It was years and years ago before there were any cars or any modern machines and there were dirt roads and everybody traveled with wagon or carriage or walked or on a horse. And this was the day for the boy to visit the village for the first time with his father. And everything was new to him. And in that village there was a blacksmith. And in that blacksmith's shop was an anvil, very large, very dark, very heavy. As the boy and his father were walking down the street, he heard a loud Clang, clang, clang. And he asked his father, what's that? And his father said, well, come, I'll show you what it is. So he took him to the blacksmith's shop and the door was wide open. And there was the blacksmith inside. The little boy was stunned because this man was gigantic. He was huge. His muscles bulged out everywhere. And he had in his hand the biggest hammer this boy had ever seen, like a big sledgehammer. And there was a glowing piece of metal on the anvil, and he was lifting the hammer and bringing it down harder than he'd ever seen anything. Clang! And every time it landed, the little boy would wince like this. He couldn't help himself. He would just wince every time the hammer would hit the anvil. And his father explained... A blacksmith is a person who makes tools and fixes axles and wheels and plows and sometimes makes horseshoes for our horses. But the little boy wasn't looking at any of those tools or any of those instruments. He was fixated on this massive anvil. And that hammer coming down so hard over and over. And the blacksmith paused for a moment and saw the boy and stopped. And in the silence of the moment, the boy said to him, Aren't you afraid you're going to break that thing? Pointed at the anvil. 
And the blacksmith smiled and said, Son, this anvil is a hundred years old and has worn out many hammers. The point of the parable is this. The Bible has worn out a thousand hammers. It is an anvil that has worn out a thousand criticisms and a thousand philosophies and a thousand objections. One of the reasons that I start this way and tell you this little parable and comment about the Bible's being that way is because I want a place to stand that is strong and not like sand, but like an anvil. Isaiah 40, verse 8. This is a prophet in the Old Testament. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides or endures forever. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the Bible is like an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. Why has it worn out a thousand hammers? Two reasons. It has worn out a thousand hammers and has lasted all this time because God endures from generation to generation and because the Bible is the word of God. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. The Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God never had a beginning. He never had an ending. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. Therefore, when he speaks, it lasts. Or Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you have a word spoken by a God who is God from everlasting to everlasting, and the central character of the story of the Bible is one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it isn't hard to conceive why the Bible is an anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. I want a place to stand in my life, and I think you do too. I want to build my life on something that lasts. That's my first reason for telling you this little parable and highlighting the durability of the Bible. I don't want to stand on sand. I don't want to be chasing moonbeams or bubbles that burst. I had a magnificent illustration of this this summer. Talitha was three years old. We were at a cabin in Asheville, North Carolina on vacation. And my wife being the perfect mom that she is, knows how to take things along that keep three-year-olds busy while we do what we want to do some of the time. And one of those things that she took along was a big bottle of bubble-blowing fluid with one of those little round sticks that you blow through the hole. And Talitha had never done this before. 
So one afternoon we began and I showed it to her and we dipped it down in there and then I did the first one. She was absolutely amazed. All these bubbles. Can I do it? And it took her a while, but she finally realized you don't spit on it. You don't put it against your mouth. You get it just right. And she made bubbles. And then I showed her something that I learned. If you hold it like this, you can blow lots of little bubbles. But if you turn it flat so gravity helps you, and then you blow down softly, you can get one bubble to get bigger and bigger and bigger because it hangs there. It doesn't fall off. And then you can go... And it just goes. (laughs) And I got one to be about that big. And as it hung there in the sun, it was all yellow and orange and blue and golden. And she reached out and touched it and it just, it was gone. And a little teeny drop went bleep and a little spot appeared on the wood on the porch. I blew another one. And she tried to blow a big one. And they were gorgeous. As the light hit them, they were absolutely gorgeous. And as the fluid moved around, they shimmered like like a globe with the ocean kind of moving around on it. And one time, it went off the edge of the balcony, and we just watched it as it shimmered down and then touched a blueberry or blackberry bush on the other side and just, it was gone. I do not want to spend my life pursuing bubbles. They're beautiful. All the bubbles of the world are beautiful. Television is full of beautiful images. And movies are full of beautiful images. And magazines are full of beautiful images. And money can buy beautiful images. And you touch them, and they're gone. I want an anvil. Just before I got up here, David put his hand on my back and he said, Go stand on the anvil, John. I want an anvil. That a thousand hammers can't wear out. I don't want to pursue bubbles. I don't want to stand on sand. And I don't think you do either. And so the issue is, where can you get an anvil to stand on that will last for this life? It'll last in the hour of death. It'll last right after death. And it'll last 10,000 ages of years. Where can you find an anvil to stand on that will not be worn out no matter how many poundings come against it? That's the first reason that I thought about this parable about the Bible being like an anvil. Here's the second reason. I'm 53 years old. Some people are older and a lot of people in this room are younger. The older I live, the more... I recognize the shortness of the shelf life of human contrivances of happiness. Human ways of healing, human ways of getting life fixed, they seem to come in waves. You don't, you can't know that if you're a teenager, unless you're a really historically oriented teenager who reads. It's a good thing to learn how to read, kids. Then you can save yourself a lot of trouble in, in life because you can learn how not to make mistakes that people made a century ago or a generation ago or 500 years ago. But if you're insisting on learning by living, then you will have to learn slowly. But if you live 40 or 50 or 60 years, you will start to realize, you know, I remember when this was real exciting to everybody and I haven't heard anybody mention it in five years. And then there was this, and everybody was excited about this. And then 
I haven't heard anybody talk about that for a decade. And I haven't even thought about it. And, and you start to look at your life as one phase of fads after another. And when that feeling hits you and you start to feel like you're, you're rising above fads, you really want to have something that's not faddish. Young people, they're just totally enslaved to fads, by and large. And, and older people, that's why older people seem boring to kids. Because older people look at those things and they just shake their head and say, you won't wear that in a year. <laughs> of course, they don't care if you won't wear it in a year. They'll, they'll wear the next fad. And the... But as you get older, those kinds of things seem so short and so ephemeral and so insignificant that you want to start putting your life on something that's a little bit more substantial than a bubble like Gap or guess or I'm sure those are way out of date now. Whatever the I was told by myself what the new thing is, but I forgot it. And it's all right. I, I am out of date when it comes to such ridiculous things. People that don't have their lives built around the huge realities, God and sin and redemption and Christ and Faith and repentance and heaven and hell, these huge, never-changing realities. People who, who, who treat those like unicorns, cyclopses, flat-earth societies. Just those people, as they design and craft strategies of healing and strategies of hope and how to make life work, can only produce fads. All you get is fads if you take out reality that lasts. And those are the big ones. Well, let me illustrate this with something I read recently. This article really brought me up short and made me realize I'm not watching the culture as closely as I might. It's an article called Biological Psychiatry, written by David Paulison. And in it, he draws our attention to something that I don't know whether you've noticed or not. Namely, that in the last five years or so, there's been a sea change in the mental health industry. In the 80s, especially the end of the 80s, it was a heyday for what? Tell me the last time you heard any animated conversation about codependency. Not recently. You say, oh yeah, codependency, I remember that. Books, codependent no more. Homecoming, I remember those. Where, where is that? Instead, something has changed dramatically. Diagnoses and remedies in those days went something like this. We owe our miseries and our misbehaviors mainly to the wounds and pain of our family of origin and what what happened to us in our childhood. And the remedy was a sensitive, non-judgmental psychotherapist and groups who could feel our pain and empathize with our woundedness. That was all the rage. And now, something remarkable has happened. Now, the rage is all biological, less psychological. 
Replacing the needy, hurting, wounded soul is the dysfunctional brain. It's not the family of origin that has center stage. It's hormones, genes, chemicals, neurotransmitters. And the books today are not codependent no more, but Harold Kopelwitz's It's Nobody's Fault that explains the problems of human life in terms of neurotransmitter shortages. And Peter Kramer's Listening to Prozac that says we have entered an era of cosmetic psychopharmacology. Let me read you the description of this change from David Paulison's article. The world did change in the mid-90s. The action is now in your body. It's what you got from mom and dad, not what they did to you. The excitement is about brain functions, not family dysfunctions. The cutting edge is in the hard science, medical research, and psychiatry. Not squishy, soft philosophy of life, feel good, feel your pain psychologies. Psychiatry's back. Biology is suddenly hot. Psychiatry is suddenly broken forth, a blitzkrieg sweeping away all opposition. The insurance companies love it because drugs seem like medicine instead of talk. And they seem cheaper than talk and promise more predictable results. Psychotherapy professionals are on the defensive. Now here's the point I want to draw out of this. I don't want to put my eggs in a fad basket. I don't want to build my salvation and hope in life around a passing excitement. And believe me, the present passing excitement with medicine and biology will pass. It will pass. And we'll look back on it in 15 or 20 years and something new and exciting is on the field to fix your life. Here's another way to, to say it. When the Human Genome Project has run its course and, and genomic mapping and chemical therapies has done what it can do, there will be vast disillusionment in our culture. No fulfilled life no fountain of youth, no utopia, and especially no comfort at death. There's never been a pill and there's never been a psychotherapy that helps you die well. I want something more durable. Here's another way to put it. When Ritalin has calmed you down, and Prozac has cheered you up. Now what? Big deal. The promise seems so great. And the payoff is so small compared to the big realities. Heaven, hell, sin, righteousness, God, Satan, Christ, cross. Righteousness, forgiveness, acceptance, eternal life, eternal damnation. What's a pill and what's a psychotherapist got to do with that? 
Unless you walk out of here saying the wrong thing, I have not eliminated the proper place of medicine and the proper place of counseling. Don't hear me that way. I'm indicting faddishness and bandwagonism that tends to give you the sense that finally we found the solution to the problems of life. The pill will fix it, or my therapist will fix it, or my group will fix it, and they don't ever fix it. Because no matter how happy you become, you die. And many, many terrible things happen to happy people. And how are you going to survive those things? And how are you going to face death? And what are you going to do to solve the problem on the other side of of death? So... I want, a, I want an anvil, you want an anvil that can't be worn out by a thousand hammers, doesn't have any faddishness about it, is not a bandwagon, and when you get on it, you're on a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, ten thousand year old truth that cannot be shaken because it's true truth with a capital T rooted in an everlasting God. That's what you want. That's the kind of life we want to live. Oh, the kind of people that are made out of that kind of anvil dwelling. They take risks. They love. They sacrifice. They're ready to die, and so they're ready to live. That's the kind of people the world needs. And I think deep down in every human heart in this room, the kind of people we want to be. And we know we can't be it with a pill. We can't be it with a group. We can't be it with a therapist. We can't be it with a fad. There's only one source, and that's either God or it isn't going to happen. Either there's a God or there's no anvil. Just bubbles that you reach for and at the moment of death, ha! I remember the fad of existentialism in the 60s. Remember the drama of the absurd? Remember Camus? Remember waiting for Godot? I wasn't old enough then to know. But now I look back and that little, hey, that's what they believed. Absurd. It's all absurd. So make the most of absurdity. And so they wrote dramas and music. Remember John Cage put on a concert in Times Square and sat at the piano for two hours and never touched the keys? And everybody applauded when he was done. That was my day. <laughs> the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. It isn't blowing in the wind. It's in the Bible. An anvil that cannot be worn out by a thousand hammers. So let me tell you the story. Just a few more minutes. I want to put the gospel of the Bible of Jesus Christ on four hangers or pins. Here they are. If you can remember these four words, you'll have it. God, sin, Christ, and faith. God, sin, Christ, and faith. So let me walk you through these four. Because it may be that some of you know the Bible by the hearing of the ear, but have never heard summarized in one brief statement, what's the main essential message of Jesus Christ in the Bible? So here it is. God, in the beginning, 
This is the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know whether I'm wired different than other people, but ever, ever since I was about 12 years old, I can remember lying on the roof of my house. We had a spiral stair that led to the roof of our house and a little uh, gravel tar platform. And I lay down on the shingles of my house, 12, 13, 14 years old at night and looked up into the sky and trembled at the thought that God never had a beginning and will never have an ending. And it just made me shudder that God never came into being. I cannot conceive of being a certain way, but not becoming that way. Because all that I am, I became. I became this way. My parents taught me to do these things. And I went to school and I learned things. And God never went to school to be. He never went to any school to be righteous, to be holy, to be loving, to be kind, to be patient. He simply is that way. That's ultimate reality. It just staggers the mind to think that reality is rooted in an ultimate absolute. God said, tell them my name. I am sent you. So when God chooses to name himself, he says, I am. I am. And the word Jehovah or Yahweh is the name built on the verb I am. So God's universal name in the Old Testament is simply you deal with one who is, always was, never became, always will be from everlasting to everlasting. I am God and the way I am is reality. Holy, just, good, loving, gracious, patient, true, unchanging, everlasting God. And that God, according to Isaiah the prophet, chapter 43, verse 7, created you for his glory. Let me read it to you. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. That means you were created to know his glory, his beauty, his excellence, his wonder, his perfections, his attributes. You were created to know them and to love and savor them as the satisfaction of your life and then to display them in your enjoyment of them. That's why you were made. So if you wondered, why am I on planet Earth? Why is human being different from chimpanzees and porpoises, the highest of the other kinds of creatures? And we're so different, we write poems and we build buildings and we marry and love one another and we feel anger and hatred and indignation and justice and patience and love and all these glorious things. Where did that come from? Why are we like that? And the answer is God made you in his image to know him and love him and enjoy him and thus reflect his glory everywhere in the world by the way you live. That's hanger number one, God. Hanger number two is sin. What is sin? If the purpose of God for your life is that you know him and love him and enjoy him and reflect him in the world, sin is not doing that. And nobody in this room has done it as we ought We treat God like a raincoat. 
What do you do with raincoats? You leave them molding in the closet. That's what you do. Dark closet with the door shut. Unless it really rains. And then you might take it out and try to get some covering from it. God is not honored by being treated like a raincoat. Sin, Romans 3.23, the Bible says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See the connection between sin and glory? Sin is failing to love the glory, failing to enjoy the glory, failing to know the glory and live for the glory and it says all have done it. Everybody in this room, everybody outside this room, there are no humans that are sinless except one, Jesus Christ. And sin has mainly to do with God, not man. We usually think of sin as something that hurts people. Well, it does. It does. It is destructive to human life. But that's not the main meaning of sin. The main meaning of sin is it injures the glory of God. It dishonors God. It blackballs God. It puts God in the closet like a rain cloak. Maybe, maybe we'll take him out at a funeral. Maybe we'll take him out when the hospitalization happens. Maybe we'll take him out at, at Christmas time or God is mightily dishonored when we treat him that way. And so sin has put us in a very precarious situation toward God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Everlasting death. We are under judgment because of our sin. That's hanger number two. Now, hanger number three is the good news of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ and how does he relate to sin and God and our predicament of judgment? Who is Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what Andrew Pitcher read, because that's in the Gospels. John 1. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, never having a beginning, co-eternal with God, uncreated, unmade, very God of very God, standing forth as a second person of the united Godhead in the most mysterious and glorious way, and then taking on human nature. Why? Why did this mystery of God the Son becoming the God-man, Jesus Christ, happen? Very simple. So that he could die. He couldn't die if he didn't have a human nature. And he meant to die. Isn't that amazing? The design of the incarnation coming from glory and spirit and infinite joy 
into the world that he had made, clothed with human nature for one main reason, that he might have the wherewithal to die. And then you got to ask, why? Why is the whole design of the Father and the Son to enter human nature to die? And here's the reason. The heart of God toward you and me is not only a heart of justice yielding wrath, but a heart of love yielding mercy. And the major challenge for God, and you may not feel it like a challenge, but it is huge, is how can I be both just in dealing with sinners who have dishonored me through treating me like a raincoat their whole life long, and yet a God of love who means to save and rescue creatures from death and hell and bring them into my holy presence forever and ever that they might enjoy me. How can that be? How can both of those things be true? And the answer is the life and the death of Jesus Christ. All that wrath that we deserved was poured out on him. And all the righteousness that we failed to accomplish was lived out by Him. And there's this magnificent substitution, it's called, or exchange, whereby those whom Christ saves, He imparts His lived out, performed righteousness over to them and signs it over to their credit. And He takes their sin and wears it on His shoulders as He dies the death that they deserved so that those who are saved are saved from their sin because of Christ. Christ is our all. When we sang that song right after Andrew's testimony, I have a righteousness, a perfect righteousness in heaven. That's what we were singing about. That's hanger number three. That's how he accomplished redemption. Last point. Last hanger, last pin where you can hang the gospel. Faith. It's the question, okay, Pastor John, okay, I, I see God in His holiness and justice and mercy and wrath and I see my sin that I've mistreated Him terribly by hardly giving Him two seconds of my life and I've sinned against His law Terribly, My own conscience indicts me, and surely His law does. And now you tell me there's a Savior and a Redeemer, and because of what He did 2,000 years ago by taking the place of sinners and dying their death and living their righteousness and rising triumphant over hell and death and sin, I hear you, how do I get connected? How does all that become mine? And the answer of the Bible is simple enough for a child to understand. So listen, children. Trust Him. The message of the Bible is, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, trusts in Him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. With God forever. Trust Him that everything He said He did, He did. 
Trust him that everything he said he will do, he will do. Trust him that everything he says he is for us, he is for us. Don't chop him up into pieces and say, I trust this about him, but I don't trust that about him. He is one whole glorious Savior. Trust him and all that he did and all that he is and all that he promised to be forever and ever and ever. He's the center of Christianity. And God sent him to take our sin if we will trust him. So let me close with this. Where are you going to live if you trust him? You see the front of this brochure, this worship folder? It says, thankful toward the past, faith toward the future. Where do you live if you trust Jesus? And the answer is you live right where that little red twig is. Between the past grace of God for which you're thankful and the future grace of God in which you trust. You know what that place is? That place is the place of greatest healing in the world. The reason there are psychotherapists and the reason there are medicines is because counselors and doctors want to help us get well. Heal us. The place of greatest healing, along with all that what man can do for us, which is very small compared to what God can do for us, Along with all of that, the most healing place in the world is a life lived between thankfulness for the past and faith for the future. Tell me who the healthiest people are that you know. Are they not the people who are looking back over all the pain and all the hurts and all the disappointments and all the frustrations and all the good times and all the bad times and because of God's promises and grace they are thanking God for their past life. That takes a miracle for many of you. I know it does. It takes an absolute miracle to look back on many of your experiences and say God is working all of those things together for my everlasting good and therefore all the pain in spite of it all, I thank God for my life that He has led me through. And then those people turn to the future and instead of all kinds of anxieties inside, they feel confident because God has said, I'll take care of you. I'll strengthen you. I put my Barnabas on the bus this morning at 7.45 to go down to Worthington. And every time I send one of my boys away somewhere, I grab them and I say, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my, my victorious right hand. That's the key to a life. On an anvil. If you got that, if God and not a bubble, not a bubble of therapy or a bubble of pills or a bubble of family or a bubble of church, but God 
saying, I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you. I'll love you. I'll take care of you through all the pain and through death and into eternity. Then you've got an anvil to stand on. And a thousand hammers won't break this anvil. And so my closing plea is simply for everybody in this room, this is a good place to live. Come to the anvil between gratitude for the past and faith and confidence for the future. Jesus Christ has died to give you a place to stand that will never let you down. Father, finish the work which you've begun. You may have begun it 40 years ago or 19 years ago or 10 minutes ago. Bring it to wonderful completion in faith right now. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to go any particular place. Faith is an act of the heart, leaning on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and turning away from self-reliance. Amen. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Happy Thanksgiving.